You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining me for the Jefferson County News for the week of April 13th, 2023. My name is Gregory Haddock. For today's reading, we will be covering the following stories. It's Annie Bunny's Game, Local Park District's Easter Egg Hunt, A Hopping Good Time by Corinne Westerman for the Jeffco Transcript. The Rising Sun and Risen Sun. Red Rocks Amphitheater, the perfect backdrop for Easter sunrise service by Deb Hurley-Brobst for the Arvada Press. Arvada West students walk out to protest gun violence by Macy Lesh and Chloe Rios, Arvada West High School for the Arvada Press. Four retail marijuana shops opening in Golden, City Determining How to Spend Future Excise Tax Revenues by Corinne Westman for the Golden Transcript and following up with various articles. It's Any Bunny's Game, Local Park District's Easter Egg Hunt, A Hopping Good Time, by Corinne Westman. The Saturday before Easter always comes with great egg expectations, and April 8th was no different, as thousands of families across the Golden and Lakewood areas attended local Easter egg hunts. The Applewood area's Maple Grove Park was packed with 400 to 500 attendees as families counted down the seconds until 10 a.m. on the dot. When the hour arrived, children tore under the boundary tape to nab all the colorful eggs littering the ground. The Prospect Recreation and Park District set out more than 3,000 eggs, including 150 golden eggs, that allowed children to pick out toys at the prize booth. The Easter Bunny also attended, creating the perfect photo op for youngsters. Organizers noted that this year's attendance was back to pre-pandemic levels and were happy to see how many families had walked to the event. District Manager Kyle Parker, who joined the PRPD about two weeks ago, said this is the district's big springtime event. Its biggest one of the year is Pumpkin Fest, which will be October 7th at Fairmount Park. PRPD's boundaries are unincorporated Jefferson County between Golden, Lakewood, Wheat Ridge, and Arvada. It operates eight parks with two more under construction and also runs the Applewood Golf Course. For more information on the district, its amenities, and programs, visit prospectdistrict.org. The Rising Sun and the Risen Sun, Red Rocks Amphitheater, the perfect backdrop for Easter sunrise service by Deb Hurley-Brobst. It's not that often that a band provides a soundtrack for a spectacular Colorado sunrise, but that's what the conifer-based band Blood Brothers did on April night when they performed at Red Rocks Amphitheater for Easter sunrise service. It was standing room only as thousands of people packed into the amphitheater for the 76th annual non-denominational service. This is the second year that Blood Brothers, led by Lance Swearingen, pastor at Conifer Community Church, provided music for the service. They played traditional hymns like Amazing Grace and Christ the Lord is Risen Today, along with some original material. Hosted by the Colorado Council of Churches, the Christian Sunrise Service draws people from across the state and metro area to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Gates opened at 4.30 a.m., and worshipers arrived early to nab seats with a view of the eastern horizon. As it got closer to 6.32 a.m., some moved out of the stairway to grab selfies and photos of the sunrise. The Band Blood Brothers began forming in 2015 when Swearingen, vocalist and guitarist, and his friend Josh Harwood, also a guitarist, began playing together. 
drummer Taylor Mead joined next, and then Troy Steinbach on keyboards, Joy Jay Jenninger on the fiddle, and Bob Brown on bass, bass guitar. Then vocalist Susie Nelson and Sarah Bauer, who also has her own band, the Sarah Bauer Band, joined in. Performing on the Red Rocks Amphitheater stage is a dream come true for the musicians. It's on the bucket list for most musicians, Steinbach added. Bauer said when she went to a concert at Red Rocks when she was seven, she knew she wanted to perform on that stage. Swearingen said playing this Easter gig has been a huge blessing for his, both his calling as a pastor and his lifelong enjoyment of music. This year, three of the band members' daughters joined on stage. Conifer High School freshman Maddie Brown and Lily Harwood and West Jefferson Middle School 8th grader Megan Swearingen. Megan explained that the three got to perform thanks to a pinky, pinky promise. Dad Lance promised the girls could sing with Blood Brothers if they played the sunrise service a second time. While attending sunrise service is pretty special, performing at Red Rocks is even more special, according to the girls. You can see the sunrise every day, but performing at Red Rocks is amazing, Lily said. The band got its name when Harwood sent Swearingen a song called Blood Brothers, and Swearingen thought it would be a great name for a band. In 2022, when the Colorado Council of Churches asked for videos of bands interested in providing music for Sunrise Service, Swearingen took a chance and sent one in. The band was selected and has returned for its encore performance. The attendees. Young and old attended Sunrise Service, all agreeing that Red Rocks Amphitheater is a special place with beautiful views. Couple that with the picture-perfect sunrise and the 40-degree weather, and the service was a superb event. Kevin and Rebecca Moots traveled from Parker to Morrison to attend the service with their children for the first time. We are very blessed to be here, Rebecca said. It doesn't get any better than this. Kristen and Matt Maloney of Idaho Springs brought their sons, Luke 7 and Graham 3, who were wide awake as they waited for the service to begin. This was also their first time attending the service. Don and Sarah, who live in Morrison, attended sunrise service occasionally, and this year the early service, close to home, was helping since they were hosting Easter dinner for family. This is unique, Don said. This is a one-of-a-kind experience. Sarah added, we are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus and the joy of the day. Hugh Morgan of Windsor and Stacy Banks of Golden also attended for the first time. This is a great opportunity to enjoy the beautiful weather and celebrate Christ's resurrection, Banks said. Morgan added that the turnout was impressive. Regis Jesuit High School students Rosary Tambunan and Katie Nelson brought exchange student Ruby Huska of Switzerland to see the sunrise at Red Rocks, not realizing that thousands would be joining them to witness the sight at the service. This is a gift from God, Tambunan said. It's a blessing in disguise. Jessica Gray of Littleton stopped on the stairway to admire the view, noting that the last time she went to sunrise service was about 25 years ago. It's great to be here with the community and take in the beauty of God's creation, Gray said. Easter was one of Gray's favorite holidays because it's about love and forgiveness, noting that the high, the high attendance at the service showed people's belief in God and the meaning of Easter. The service. Adrian Miller, who welcomed attendees to the service, told the crowd that it was easy to see that they loved the Lord because they came out even with a chill in the air. He was impressed that by applause, many said this was their first time at sunrise service. The Colorado Council of Churches, which sponsors the service, is comprised of 13 Christian denominations representing 800 churches. The Reverend Tamara Boynton said she had a beautiful view from the stage as she looked at all the faces in the crowd. No matter who you are or, in, or where you are in life's journey, you are welcome here, she told them, 
calling Red Rocks Amphitheater an apt location for the service. She told them to breathe in the area's beauty and breathe out the distractions in their hearts. To breathe in unconditional love and breathe out to others who sway them from that love. To breathe in the wonders of the risen Christ and breathe out the darkness of the tomb. Blood Brothers sang an original song which Swearingen told the crowd talked about the tension between the trouble in people's lives and the celebration of Easter. We need to embrace both the hurt and the hope from our faith in Christ's resurrection, he said. Arvada West students walk out to protest gun violence by Macy Lesh and Chloe Rios, Arvada West High School. Students at Arvada West High School took a stance against gun violence in schools by leaving their classes and carrying neon signs to all four corners of 64th Avenue and Sims Street. The April 5th walkout was national, organized by the group Students Demand Action. Made up of young activists in the wake of the Parkland, Florida shooting in 2018, Students Demand Action is, according to their website, committed to ending gun violence in our communities. Would you rather have us students dead, or would you rather keep your guns? Said sophomore Samuel Bierbaut Brower, who along with junior Izzy Springer was a leader of the Wednesday event. There's always something to be done, and it starts on this street corner, protesting and not being apathetic. Politicians have the control to do this and make change. It is possible, Springer said. Throughout the day, the two marched across the streets to amplify their demands. The Columbine High School massacre in 1999 marked a notable place in history for growing gun violence in schools. After a drop in gun violence during pandemic lockdowns, violence has soared after students returned to in-person learning full-time. With classes in session again, 42 K-12 schools experienced school shootings in 2021, and 46 endured one the next year. Mirroring the nation's broader rise in gun violence as it emerged from the pandemic, the Washington Post reported in an April 2023 article. With recent school shootings at the Covenant School in Nashville and at Denver's East High School, Concerns have sparked among students nationwide and led to the walkout. At Arvada West, junior Maggie Hodson held a sign saying, I should be worried about SATs, not my life. Quotes, I have a bulletproof thing in my bag and I keep fake blood just in case. Freshman Sarah Smith, who agreed with Hodson's sign adds, you have to prepare for these things. This is not something kids should be doing. Thaddeus Alden Berry Hill, sophomore, had a passionate defense of the protest while he stood at the northeast corner of 64th and Sims. I am out here today using my voice and using my voice well to spread awareness, to make sure that everyone that drives past this intersection knows that I will not remain silent while my fellow students are being killed in classrooms and then their deaths are blamed on marginalized communities, he said. His words were echoed by many other students as well as his frustration with lawmakers, in his opinion, their lack of effort. The leaders in this country have decided that it is politically acceptable to see the slaughters in our schools, he said. That is disgusting, and that needs to stop. That is why I am out here today. That is why this matters more than class. Freshman Jaden Goins was part of the protests where about 50 to 60 students participated. I just feel like this isn't an issue that is debatable, he said. All of these politicians over 45 don't know what we are going through, and they don't know the daily struggle of thinking that when you say goodbye to mom and dad, that it might be the last time you do it. Junior McKenna Nix held her sign almost the entire protest 
with constant reminders to her classmates to keep safe and follow the law. We don't deserve to go to school to prepared for the possibility that we could die. There have been way too many mass shootings in schools, and it's absolutely ridiculous. Nothing is being done about it, she said. Many students marched arm in arm, signs raised, waving them at cars, often chanting. A constant chant during the protest was, dead kids can't read. Many passing cars honked in support of the students, while others made rude hand gestures or threw trash and soda bottles. When support was given, students cheered for the cars because they helped raise the message of the walkout. Macy Lesh and Chloe Rios are students at Arvada West High School and editors at the student newspaper, The West Wind. The article is reprinted with permission. See more of their work at awestnews.com. Four retail marijuana shops opening in Golden. City Determining How to Spend Future Excise Tax Revenues by Corinne Westerman. When opening Golden to retail marijuana last summer, officials decided to limit it to four licensees in city limits. Now, all four licenses are in final stages of approval. The city's first retail dispensary opened this week, and the other three plan to open by summer. If so, Golden's estimating $250,000 in marijuana excise tax revenues for 2023. At a recent city council meeting, city staff said the four licensees are Golden Alternative Medicine, also known as Vert's Neighborhood Dispensary, at 511 Orchard Street. Outcrop Dispensary, at 18475 West Colfax Avenue. Igadi Dispensary at 791 Pine Ridge Road. And The Fireplace at 17120 West Colfax Avenue. In November 2021, city voters have a green light, gave a green light to the limited retail sale of marijuana to adults, 2A, as well as a 6% excise tax, 2B, on its commercial sale. Then, last summer, City Council defined retail, retail marijuana as any non-medical marijuana dispensaries and limited their locations based on proximity to schools, parks, and other dispensaries. Thus, potential locations for licensees were limited to Canyon View Business Park in Northwest Golden, the Course Technology Center Park to the Northeast, the Interstate 70 exit 259 area to the Southwest, and along stretches of Colfax Avenue and U.S. Highway 6 in South Golden. City Council also allowed up to four retail marijuana licenses, with one set aside for a social equity licensee based on state criteria. The state's Marijuana Enforcement Division has a social equity or accelerator program that, quote, acknowledges the effects of decades of criminal enforcement on marijuana laws on communities of color, according to the state website. This social equity program works to include cannabis professionals who may have faced barriers to entry in Colorado's retail marijuana industry. Since passing the ordinance last summer, Golden received five retail marijuana applications, including one social equity applicant. Steve Gluick, assistant to the city manager, explained how one of the five was deemed ineligible because it was within 1,000 feet of another applicant. So the city went ahead with the four eligible applicants, with Gluick adding that Golden would have conducted a lottery if it had received more. Vert's neighborhood dispensary is now open, with the other three in the final stages. Glick said licensing approval is only contingent on their final site improvements and inspections with the city and state. Excise tax revenues. With the dispensary starting to open, Golden will soon be collecting 6% excise tax on their sales, along with an estimated $250,000 in revenues for 2023. 
The city has budgeted for $600,000 in 2024, Gluick confirmed. City Council has intended to use these funds for public health resources, including those substance abuse recovery, mental health, food insecurity, and housing insecurity. Right now, Golden's only made one commitment with the excise tax revenues, $100,000 to the hunger-free Golden Collaborative. Of that, Gluick said, the city's already paid $30,000, which is about how much the city's made from the licensing application fees. During the city council meeting, Gluick asked the councilors to consider whether they else they'd like to do with any remaining 2023 revenues and beyond. Based on the city's discussed criteria, it could use the funds toward anything from low-income household rental assistance to youth mental health programs. Mayor Laura Weinberg mentioned a nonprofit called Donations for Dignity that provides personal hygiene items that residents can't buy with SNAP benefits and aren't typically at food pantries. Items include soap, toothbrushes, shampoo, diapers, and menstrual health products. Overall, though, she said City Council will decide what to do with these, these revenues later this year with a myriad of valuable resources and programs to consider. Legal paraprofessionals will be able to represent some clients. Goes into effect July 1st. By Paula Zialcita, Colorado Public Radio. The Colorado Supreme Court has ruled that licensed legal paraprofessionals without law degrees will be able to represent clients in certain cases. Starting July 1st, licensed legal paraprofessionals may file court documents and represent their clients in mediation during domestic cases involving divorce proceedings and child custody hearings. LLPs will also be able to accompany clients to court and answer a judge's questions, but will be unable to present oral arguments or question witnesses. The state Supreme Court's decision was done in the hopes of making legal representation more widely available and more affordable. Making it easier for people to secure legal representation in these often difficult matters has been a long-term goal of our commitment to ensuring access to justice for all Coloradans. Colorado Supreme Court Chief Justice Brian D. Boatwright said in a statement, Allowing non-lawyers to provide limited legal representation for people who otherwise couldn't afford it will not only help those litigants, but it will help the courts efficiently and effectively handle their cases, end quote. According to Colorado's judicial branch, 74% of parties involved in domestic-related cases between July 2021 and June 2022 represented themselves, 74%. Prospective legal paraprofessionals will be subject to similar educational requirements as lawyers before they're able to represent clients, as outlined by the new Rule 207 of the Colorado Rules of Civil Procedure. First, applicants must either work the equivalent of three full-time years in family law or obtain certification, such as an associate's or bachelor's degree in paralegal studies or a paralegal certificates while completing a four-year degree program. Those who pursue their license must, through obtaining a degree, must also work 1,500 hours in a, quote, law-related practical experience, including 500 hours of experience in Colorado family law. Applicants who also have to pass several courses, including ones on ethics and professional conduct. After those requirements are met, applicants have to pass a written exam administered by the Office of Attorney Regulation Council. The first LLPs could receive their licenses in July 2024. Colorado will be one of five states who allow non-lawyers to practice limited law, joining Arizona, Minnesota, Oregon, and Utah. This story is from CPR News, a nonprofit news source used by permission. For more and to support Colorado Public Radio, visit CPR, 
www.thepowerofprayer.org. Denver seeks input from LGBTQ plus community. The Center on Colfax. Staff report. Denver's LGBTQ Commission and the Center on Colfax, a nonprofit organization and community center located at 1301 East Colfax Avenue that serves the Rocky Mountain region's LGBTQ plus community, is seeking input to learn about challenges the LGBTQ plus community faces. The survey is geared toward LGBTQ plus people who are 18 years or older and live and or work in the Denver metro area. The questions focus on a variety of issues, policing and public safety, mental health and well-being, housing, civil rights and engagement, and financial well-being. The Denver LGBTQ Commission will use the survey responses to develop recommendations for the next mayoral office for ways the city can advance social, economic, and political equity for the LGBTQ plus community, according to a news release. It is expected that the survey takes about 10 minutes to complete and is anonymous. The survey could be accessed at surveymonkey.com slash r slash L-G-B-T-Q-C-O-M-M survey. To learn more about the Denver LGBTQ Commission, which is part of the Denver Agency for Human Rights and Community Partnerships, visit tinyurl.com slash denver-lgbtq-commission. To learn more about the Center on Colfax, visit lgbtqcolorado.org. Colorado collecting higher gasoline tax. Total to be three cents by Jesse Paul, the Colorado Sun. Colorado began collecting a two cent per gallon fee on gasoline purchases on April 1st. Revenue from the fee, which increases to three cents per gallon on July 1st, will go toward addressing the state's multi-billion dollar transportation project backlog. The charge was imposed through a bill passed by the legislature in 2021 that also added fees on deliveries, rideshare rides, and electric vehicles. The gas fee was originally supposed to begin in July 2022, but the legislature delayed the start until April 1st at a cost of $45 million because of high gas prices. A year ago, the average cost of a gallon of regular gas in Colorado was $3.97. This week, it was hovering around $3.47. Fuel prices reached an all-time high in Colorado in June 2022 when a gallon of regular gasoline averaged $4.92 and diesel was at $5.54 a gallon, according to AAA. The gas fee is set to increase gradually by 1%, 1 cent per year until it reaches $0.08 cents per gallon in July 2028. In July 2023, 32, the fee will be adjusted annually based on inflation. Other fees imposed by the bill include a 27 fee, 27 cent fee on deliveries, a 30 cent fee on ride shares, a 4 cent per gallon fee on diesel fuel. Like the gas fee, the diesel fee increases annually, but by 2 cents until it reaches 16 cents in 2028. The fuel and road usage fees are the subject of a lawsuit filed in Denver District Court by conservatives who argue the charges are, were illegally imposed. Colorado's Taxpayers' Bill of Rights requires that voters approve all tax increases, but fees can be imposed by the legislature as long as the revenue goes to a set purpose. Colorado also collects a $0.22 cent tax on each gallon of gas sold. The state's gas tax is among the lowest in the country. This story is from the Colorado Sun, a journalist-owned news outlet based in Denver and covering the state. For more and to support the Colorado Sun, visit coloradosun.com. The Colorado Sun is a partner in the Colorado News Conservancy, owner of Colorado Community Media. Six things to know about Colorado's $38.5 billion budget. By Jesse Paul, the Colorado Sun. 
No new federal COVID-19 dollars. Record inflation. State services stretched thin by a growing population. Those are the circumstances under which the Colorado Legislature's Joint Budget Committee this year drafted the $38.5 billion state budget that takes effect July 1st. It's not a sexy budget, said State Senator Rachel Zinzinger, an Arvada Democrat who chairs the JBC. It's pretty conservative. Senator Barbara Kirkmeyer, a Brighton Republican who sits on the JBC, called next year's spending plan a get-her-done budget. But it's still packed with plenty of notable items. Here's what you need to know about the budget being debated by the legislature right now and how it may affect you. The general fund portion of the fiscal year 2023-24 budget, which is the money state lawmakers have discretion over, is up 8.9% over the current year to $14.7 billion. But Zenzinger said about two-thirds of that new spending is going toward Medicaid, the state and federal program that provides health insurance to low-income people. Of the Medicaid dollars, $442 million will be allocated to replacing federal matching funds that are going away as the Biden administration ends the COVID-19 public health emergency and eliminates the enhanced federal Medicaid match rate. Another $396 million was set aside to handle projected increases in Medicaid enrollment because of a slowing economy, as well as for a 3% increase in health care provider rates. Zinzinger said the rest of the increase is going toward ensuring the state has a 15% reserve in preparation for an economic downturn and to account for inflation's effect on the state's ability to offer government services. The Department of Corrections, for instance, will get $275,000 to cover the increased cost of food served to prison inmates, as well as $1 million for a jump in the cost of utilities. The JBC also set aside $30 million for the legislature to spend on miscellaneous bills and new ongoing programs. For the current fiscal year, it was more than double that amount. Overall, the budget is smaller than it was last year when you take into consideration the Federal American Rescue Plan Act dollars the state had to spend in, its, in the current fiscal year, which ends June 30th. Keep in mind, the Colorado legislature is constrained in how much it can spend each year by the Taxpayers' Bill of Rights, which caps government growth based on population increases and the rate of inflation. While Republicans complain that the state budget is growing too large, it's Tabor, which conservatives adore and Democrats generally loathe, that really determines the size of the budget. It's still up to lawmakers, mainly the Democratic majority, in the House and Senate how the money is spent, but Tabor is the real deciding factor of the top-line number. Senate Minority Leader Paul Lundin, Republican of Monument, said during budget debate in the Senate last week that he wishes the legislature would stop creating new programs and offices and focus its money on core government responsibilities, education, and roads. I will be a no vote not in a strenuous objection to this budget, but in a call of a pursuit of a policy horizon that honors first our constitutionally mandated requirements and honors first that which should be our primary priority, the full funding of public education in Colorado, he said. One other thing to keep in mind, Tabor requires the states to refund any money it collects over the cap. Next fiscal year, that's expected to be $2.7 billion. The inflation rates used to calculate the cap, however, lags current conditions. So state budget writers say while the amount of money they have to spend appears large, it's not keeping up with the economic conditions that have increased the cost of governing. There are a handful of line items in next year's budget that could be described as somewhat big-ticket items. 
$26 million to purchase a second Sikorsky S-70 Blackhawk helicopter that will be converted into a Firehawk that can battle wind, wildland fires. The legislature set aside money two years ago so Colorado could buy its first Firehawk. The chopper still hasn't been put in service, however. The budget also set aside another $1.7 million to operate and staff the new helicopter. $3.2 million for Senate Bill 13, which would help the Division of Fire Prevention and Control investigate the causes and origins of fires with a priority on investigations into wildfires. $15 million toward a new Office of School Safety in the Department of Public Safety that will house a variety of existing efforts to prevent and respond to tragedies at K-12 schools. That represents about $9 million in new spending that will help expand some of those existing initiatives. The Senate also passed an amendment allocating an additional $10 million in new spending for a grant program in the new office. $7.3 million to account for a forecast increase in the state's prison population. $221 million set aside for forthcoming property tax relief legislation, as well as other housing-related bills. $115 million to implement Proposition FF, a ballot measure passed by voters in November that raises taxes on wealthy Coloradans to pay for universal free lunches in public schools. The money will be repaid to the general fund once the tax collection begins. $120,000 to respond to the decision to disband Tri-County Health Department and to help Douglas, Arapaho, and Adams County stand up their own public health agencies. $1.6 million that includes funding to hire 14 people to represent the state in Colorado River water negotiations. State Senator Jeff Bridges, a Greenwood Village Democrat who sits on the JBC, said one of his favorite line items in the budget is a $416,000 allocation to hire five people in the Department of Veterans Affairs to help connect Colorado veterans with the benefits they earned. This is an investment to help veterans get the benefits they have entitled, they're entitled to, that they've sacrificed for, that the Department of Veterans Affairs makes nearly impossible to access, Bridges said, calling the agency a labyrinth. An item that would likely go overlooked, a $9 million spend on a technology building at Adams State University in the San Luis Valley. Without it, Students at the Alamosa School could be left without Internet access, Bridges said. Colorado Governor Jared Polis wanted, to, wanted the budget to cap the amount state-run colleges and universities can raise undergraduates in-state and in-student tuition at 4%. But the legislator decided on 5%, with the exception of the University of Northern Colorado, which will be able to increase tuition by 6%. Zinzinger said the state's higher education institutions had an 11% gap in their mandatory costs and that even with allowing for such a large tuition increase, they will only have enough money to close the gap at 10.1%. My biggest regret about the budget is that we were just not able to close that gap fully, she said. Zinzinger said the JBC was trying to meet schools' financial needs without pricing students out of higher education. If the legislature were to allocate enough money to colleges and universities to cap tuition at 4%, it wouldn't have had any money left for new legislation and ongoing programs. Total state funding for higher education in the budget was increased by $147 million to $1.4 billion. The fiscal year 2023-24 budget includes $485 million more in K-12 education funding than in the current year, which represents a $900 per pupil increase. The budget calls for a 5.7% increase in base education spending to $8.9 billion and an 8.4% increase in average per pupil spending 
to $10,404, Chalkbeat Colorado reports. There's no money in the budget, however, for buying down the budget stabilization factor, sometimes referred to as the negative factor, which is a great recession-era scheme that allows the General Assembly to allocate to schools each year less than what they are owed. The IOU persists today. That's because there's enough money in the state education funds to buy down the deficit, and that will happen in the School Finance Act that will be debated later on in the legislative session. The state education fund, which is expected to be a rainy day pool of money to help the legislature fund K-12 education, is funded with income tax revenue. The fund gets 0.33% of taxable income, meaning that it rises and falls with the economy and as Coloradans pay increases or decreases. There is expected to be more than $1 billion in the fund next fiscal year. For the first time in a very long time, we don't need to use general fund money to effectuate that buy-down and the budget stabilization factor, Zinzinger said. That will come from the state education fund this year. That fund has grown and grown and grown, and we've tried not to tap it. But now we're in a situation where we need to spend it down. The budget stabilization factor is roughly $321 million. Sendinger said the plan is for the JBC to buy it down by either half or fully in the School Finance Act. Sendinger said there are also two things happening that are reducing how much it costs for the state to run K-12 schools. An increase in property values driving up local property tax revenue and a decrease in student enrollment. The circumstances are different this year. The context is different, she said. Next year's budget also contains money to start up several new departments and initiatives launched by lawmakers in recent years, including Universal Preschool and the Behavioral Health Administration. Starting next school year, four- and five-year-olds will be eligible for a minimum of 15 hours per week of preschool with no out-of-pocket costs for their parents. The budget has $322 million to get that up and running, half of which is a reallocation of existing funds, while the rest is coming from tax revenue generated by Proposition EE, the 2020 ballot measure raising nicotine and tobacco taxes. The budget also has $2.5 million to incentivize preschool providers to be part of the program. When it comes to the Behavioral Health Administration, which was created by the legislature in 2021, there's $1.9 million in the budget for staffing, $5 million for community providers, and $2 million for children's programs. The total amount the administration is slated to get is about $270 million. The budget provides a 5% raise to state employees with an additional 3.5% pay boost for state employees who work at 24-7 facilities, like the Mental Health Institute of Pueblo. It's tough to quantify how much money that will cost because it affects various agencies and departments differently. Additionally, any state worker who makes minimum wage will have their hourly pay bumped up to $15 an hour. There's also a $7.3 million set aside in the budget to increase pay for Colorado State Patrol troopers. Finally, the budget includes $9 million for the Department of Corrections to be spent on $1,000 per month housing stipends for 1,133 staffers through February 2024. The money will be targeted at DOC staff serving in the Buena Vista, Sterling, and Lyman Correctional Facilities. This story is from the Colorado Sun, journalist-owned news outlet based in Denver and covering the state. More than 300,000 Coloradans could soon lose Medicaid coverage. By John Ingold, The Colorado Sun. Roughly one out of every 18 Coloradans could find themselves looking for new health care coverage over the coming year. After the end of a federal pandemic-era rule means that more than 300,000 people are likely set to lose Medicaid benefits. The insurance turmoil, the result of the end of the official federal public health emergency for COVID-19 
represents the largest transition in health coverage since the Affordable Care Act went into place 10 years ago. The end of the public health emergency is a pivotal moment for Coloradans. Adam Fox, the deputy director of the Colorado Consumer Health Initiative, said at a news conference earlier this year. Medicaid is the joint state and federal government health insurance program for people with low income. In Colorado, the program is known as Health First Colorado. To qualify, households must make 138% of the federal poverty level or below, about $20,000 a year for a single person, or $40,000 for a family of four. Children and pregnant people and families who make slightly more could qualify for a related program called the Child Health Plan Plus, or CHP Plus. People on Medicaid typically must go through eligibility reevaluations to make sure they still qualify. But the federal government paused those redeterminations during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. That grew Colorado's Medicaid rolls to roughly 1.7 million people, or more than one out of every four people in the state. Now that the public health emergency is coming to an end, Medicaid officials in Colorado will start doing the eligibility reevaluations. Kim Bimastiefer, the executive director of the Colorado Department of Health Care Policy and Financing, which administers Medicaid in the state, said her department currently estimates there are 325,000 people who are currently covered by Medicaid who will no longer be eligible. The department and a bunch of other state agencies and healthcare organizations are now focused on making sure those folks maintain coverage by connecting them to other options. Everybody is working together in a collaborative, collective, meaningful way to help Coloradans covered. Help keep Coloradans covered, Bima Stiefer said. One of the most important things we can do is make sure people have affordable access to the care they need. The disenrollments won't happen all at once. Instead, it will be a gradual process playing out over the next year. The state began sending renewal notices to the first wave of Medicaid members last month. Once people receive their renewal notices, they will have about 60 days to complete their paperwork before their renewal deadlines. That means the first disenrollments will start happening in May. The process will continue monthly through April 2024 until everyone in the program has had an eligibility redetermination. Some people, about a third of those covered by Medicaid, by Mastifer said, will be automatically renewed and won't have to take any further action. Those folks will be notified of their auto renewal about two months before their renewal date. People who are no longer eligible for Medicaid will need to find other coverage options. For most, that will mean buying a private health insurance plan or checking with their workplace to see if they are eligible for employer-sponsored coverage. The most important thing for Medicaid members to do now is to update their contact information with the program. That will ensure that they receive the renewal paperwork and also make sure that everyone who is eligible for Medicaid remains covered. People need to act, said Patrick Gordon, the CEO of insurance company Rocky Mountain Health Plans. Please don't wait, end quote. This story is from the Colorado Sun. Thanks for listening to the Jefferson County News. I'm Gregory Haddock. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. Today, I'll be reading articles from the Denver Voice, Denverite, and Westward. From the Denver Voice, I'll be reading Colorado Leaders Kick Off Pivotal Child Abuse Prevention Month by Robert Davis. From Denverite, I'll be reading City Leaders Call Polis' Sweeping Land Use Bill Fundamentally Flawed by Nathaniel Minor. And Sonora Cinemas is taking over the old Elvis Cinemas Arvada location to show films for Spanish and English speakers by Isaac Vargas. From Westward, I'll be reading 
Did you know Denver tows and moves cars during street sweeping season for free by Benjamin Neufeld and 10 Things Tina Peters Can Do for Community Service by Teague Bolin. I'll finish up the hour with other articles from Westward. This first article is from the Denver Voice. Colorado Leaders Kick Off Pivotal Child Abuse Prevention Month by Robert Davis. Colorado leaders gathered at the state capitol on April 3rd to raise awareness about child abuse prevention. The event was attended by officials from the Colorado Department of Human Services and local nonprofits such as the Heart and Hand Center of Denver and Illuminate Colorado. I don't know what I would have done without my community and the services I needed to help raise my two children, said Mina Castillo-Cohen, the director of the Office of Children, Youth and Family in the Department of Human Services. Data from the Department of Human Services shows that the number of sustained cases of child abuse in Colorado has remained relatively flat since 2020, but the number of calls to Colorado's Child Abuse and Neglect Hotline, 844-CO-4-KIDS, has increased about, by about 8% to more than 209,500 over the same period. State lawmakers have worked to address issues in Colorado's child welfare, welfare system in recent years after a 2014 audit found that DHS lacks processes to ensure its programs are meeting their intent. For example, the audit found that more than half of child safety assessments had incorrect information about families and their histories. Another one-third of cases reviewed by the Child Fatality Review Team did not include recommendations to improve screenings or assessments, according to the audit. For his part, Governor Jared Polis has signed bills to allow victims to file civil lawsuits against their abusers, extended the statute of limitations to bring child abuse cases, expanded the number of people who are required to report child abuse, and created child abuse prevention training programs for early childhood education providers. Colorado has numerous community support organizations that have programs to help parents like Lupita Cardosa, who lives in Lafayette, raise their children. Cardosa enrolled at the Sister Carmen Community Center about 12 years ago while she and her children were fleeing from domestic violence. She said the center offered her group support parenting classes, and computer classes, which helped her find stability in her personal life. Today, Cardosa is a support group leader at the Sister Carmen Center, which allows her to give back to the community that helped her. Every parent needs a little help and support, Cardosa said. Research has shown that growing up in unstable housing situations can also magnify the impact of adverse childhood experiences and increase the likelihood that a child could experience homelessness at some point in their life, according to a 2019 paper by the National Health Care for the Homeless Council, a national nonprofit. Moving forward, new state programs could help reduce instances of child abuse in Colorado. One example is the state's universal pre-K program that aims to expand enrollment in early childhood education. CDHS is also launching the Colorado Implementation Science Unit to better evaluate the state's child welfare programs and improve them for the future. These programs are critical to setting Colorado's kids on a path towards well-being, says Mary Alice Cohen, Deputy Director for Colorado's Department of Early Childhood. The next two articles are from Denverite. City leaders call Polis's sweeping land use bill fundamentally flawed by Nathaniel Minor. Denver Mayor Michael Hancock announced on Wednesday the city's opposition to a sweeping and controversial state bill that would force many local governments to allow denser housing. The bill, SB 23213, aims to lower housing costs by allowing more units to be built across the state. It has drawn the scorn of many local governments, whose leaders see it as a power grab by state authorities. SB 23213 is a laudable but fundamentally flawed top-down approach, and Denver is opposed to the bill as currently drafted, Hancock and City Council President Jamie Torres wrote in a statement. Leaders of many other local governments, as well as the Colorado Municipal League and the Metro Mayor's Caucus, also oppose the bill. Denver's opposition is particularly notable because it's the state's largest city 
and some parts of it have rapidly densified over the last few decades. Denver has implemented some of the policies contained within the state bill, Hancock and Torres wrote, including allowing more density near public transit stations and allowing accessory dwelling units in certain areas. But they warned of the one-size-fits-all approach that strips away local control in the state bill. We have serious concerns about the attempt to preempt local land use control, the unintended but very real consequences of broadly upzoning when it comes to displacement and gentrification, lack of true affordability requirements in the bill, and the potential to undercut extensive community work to develop bold but appropriate plans and zoning for our residents, they wrote. The statement is in line with a previous comment. Before the bill was introduced, Hancock said Denver will never ever surrender local control to anyone. City Council has not yet taken a formal vote codifying its position, but the vast majority of council members are in agreement with the Hancock and Torres statement said City Council spokesman Robert Austin. Councilwoman Amanda Sandoval, for example, sent her constituents a letter this week saying she appreciates some parts of the bill, but she also calls it an overreach of state powers that would invalidate local planning efforts and increase displacement. But hold on, doesn't Hancock have one foot out the door? Does his opposition matter? While yes, it's true that Hancock will leave office this coming June, the state bill will either become law or die before then. The legislature must adjourn by mid-May. Were the bill to pass, it would fall to Hancock's successor and the next city council to decide how to meet its requirements. That will either be Mike Johnston or Kelly Bro, depending on the result of the June 6th runoff election. In a statement, Bro said, it's imperative that we find the best solution that fits Denver's needs. In Denver, land use is primarily within the purview of the city council, and as mayor, I would not take a position without consulting them first, she added. The Johnston campaign has not replied to a request for comment on the bill. On the topic of housing more generally, he told the Denver Post in March that we know we need to add more housing supply to make Denver affordable. But, he added, we also know we want to preserve the unique identity of each of our neighborhoods by not erecting skyscrapers in the middle of residential neighborhoods. However, in many neighborhoods, it is effective and consistent with the architecture and planning to add gentle density in the midst of single-family neighborhoods. Johnston has also been endorsed by pro-development YIMBY Denver. Sonora Cinemas is taking over the old Elvis Cinemas Arvada location to show films for Spanish and English speakers by Isaac Vargas. Sonora Cinemas, the multilingual format movie theater, is reopening after being closed since March 2020, and it's taking over the old Elvis Cinemas location in Arvada at 5157 West 64th Avenue. Sonora was originally located at Aurora Plaza on Peoria Street and East 6th Avenue. It was a popular spot for the Latinx community with its offerings of blockbuster movies in Spanish or with Spanish subtitles and its assortment of Mexican botanas snacks. The operation will replace Elvis Cinema's shuttered Arvada location, the Metro-favorite, family-owned theater chain that closed its doors in March after 23 years of business. The key metric for us is that we are a community operation, said Sonora Cinema's film buyer and corporate general manager, Louis Sullivan. It's about finding something embedded in the community. Sonora Cinema's Aurora location closed at the start of the pandemic. In a March 2020 Spanish-language Facebook post, Sonora told its followers that in order to help reduce the spread of COVID-19 in our community and our employees, it was closing its doors as other movie theaters around the country were. At that time, Sullivan says that they were been looking for an older format cinema that reflected the mission of Sonora. The post was met with several comments lamenting the closure. But now, news of its return has been met with excitement from area residents, many of whom expressed excitement and happiness at the prospect of being able to watch new movies in Spanish again. A lot of retail today is built in power centers, specifically off highways with easy access to and from exits. Any cinema that we've opened has been an older format cinema. Finding some of those can be rather difficult, 
the real estate is usually valuable. The nature of the family-owned Elvis location, the demographics of Arvada, and the timing felt right for Sonora to reopen this year, Sullivan said. We're shooting for late April, Sullivan said about a potential opening date. It's mostly cosmetic. We're really conscious about being reflective of the community that supported the Elvis cinema. We want to make sure that it is inclusive to the local folks who have been supporting that for 20-plus years as well. The Aurora location began as Cinema Latino, showing Spanish audible films that was a fan favorite for the Latinx community, but the company is hoping to expand its market reach. There is an opportunity to not just niche the Spanish language. That's what that growth for Sonora Cinemas reflects and represents. It's more based on multilingual